already this morning. It's been good to be in the house of the Lord. The 830 service, we were able to celebrate the baptism of David Boshears and Russell Ingram. And then a young man, Shay McLaughlin, united with our church upon his testimony of faith and baptism. So already much reason to rejoice. I want to direct your attention to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Verses 1 through 12 will be the focus of our time this morning in the Word. Certainly as we prepare for the Christmas season, it's a very appropriate passage to preach. In fact, throughout the remainder of December, we are going to be camped out in Matthew chapter 2, taking a look at the truth of God's Word that Matthew tells us. Lord has been, once again, very gracious to us at the Herod household. We had a very, another very good week with Emma. She's continuing to do things now that she wasn't doing prior to the last hospitalization. And yesterday, the Lord just gave us an extra special blessing. It was very unexpected. Gabriel, Ellen, and my grandchild, Kimball, uh, were over at the house. And, of course, that's always exciting whenever they come to visit. It's good to see them, and especially good to see Kimball. Um, he's two months old now and growing. Last week he discovered that his toes were attached to him. And it was just a great, great day. A lot of fun. But we had told Emma that she would be able to hold Kimball. Now, Emma is very aware of people and things that are going on. And when we tell her that Kimball's going to be there, or when we say you're going to be able to hold him, her eyes will open wide. And it's clear that she's very excited about that. Well, yesterday she was in her wheelchair and we placed Emma on her arms and uh, Emma smiled. Now this is what is neat about that. Emma has been able to move the right side of her lip and give us a little bit of a half smile. Yesterday she moved both sides. It was a full out mouth smile completely. And just an added, added blessing. So we praise the Lord for that and just I encourage you smile out of both sides of your mouth. Uh, don't take that for granted. So we really praise the Lord for that. Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 contains the story of the wise men. And I pray this morning that God would grant us to be able to see beyond the familiarity of this passage and to hear the point, to understand why this instance of the wise men coming to worship the child is so important that we needed to know it. So follow with me as I read verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for, it is so, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word 
that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Would you bow with me in prayer? Gracious Lord, we give you praise this morning for you are faithful and true. You are gracious and good, merciful and compassionate. And Father, we thank you for giving those things exceeding in an exceedingly great way to us. So Father, we ask you this morning as we explore this passage that your truth would radiate loudly and clearly. I pray that you would move us beyond our familiarity with this story so that we are not robbed of its meaning. And so Lord, please transform us that we may show your glory to the world around us. Grant this, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Giving the right response at the appropriate time is a great blessing. It's nothing to be taken for granted. In the early summer, late spring of 1997, Jody and I had gone on a date. Our oldest daughter, Ellen, was about almost two, and it was this time, you know, we just went out to eat, and after we ate, we went for a walk in a park. And while we were walking, Jody stopped all of a sudden, and she turned and faced me, grabbed my hands in a very serious manner, and she said, Mark, I need to ask you a question. And quickly I responded, yes, I will marry you. She said, no, 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 no. She asked me this, are you happy and satisfied with our life? Oh, that's a dangerous question to ask a husband. I looked at her and I said, yeah, you know, I'm very thankful. You know, Ellen's growing, I'm, our marriage is good, and Trinity's wonderful. And so, yeah, I feel very happy and satisfied. I found out that that was the wrong answer. I was supposed to have said this. You know, I feel happy and satisfied, but there is one thing that's missing. I was supposed to have said, we need to have another baby. Because Jody was pregnant with Emma, and she asked me that so that she could tell me she was pregnant. You see, I gave the wrong response without knowing the full context. You see, it's very important to know some of the variables so that you can give the right response and, and maybe answer in a way that is appropriate to the question. It's like a coach telling the team, when this happens, this is how we'll respond. If the other team does this, this is how we respond. Well, Matthew 12, or Matthew 2, 1 through 12 is written so you and I will know how to respond appropriately to Jesus. That's the point. From the very beginning, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the Messiah. 
Matthew, more than any other gospel, quotes the Old Testament to show that Jesus fulfills all the prophecies about the Messiah. But he also wants us to know how to respond to Jesus. You see, the Gospels and the Scripture itself is not written so that we will just know facts and trivia. The Gospels are written, the Scripture is given so that you and I will know God and respond appropriately. That's the point. So that we will give the right response to who Jesus is. And Matthew does this in a very unique way in, in Matthew chapter 2. He does this through a comparison of responses. You see, there are two main characters that step into the, the drama here in Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. One is Herod, the king, or Herod the Great. And by the way, no relation. And compared to Herod's response is that of the wise man. These two are set up in contrast to one another. They act as a foil against one another so you and I can understand the way we should respond to Jesus. Now the centerpiece of the story is usually these three wise men. We know of them mainly because of the Christmas carol sung that was written by Henry, John Henry Hopkins Jr. He was an Episcopalian bishop who was given the task of writing some music for the nativity scene, nativity play that his children were in. So he wrote the song. We three kings of Orient are Bearing gifts we travel afar, filled in fountain, more in mountain, following yonder star. Now, I hate to be that guy, but there's a lot in that song that is not true. In fact, there's a lot of things that have sprung up that are accepted as true because of that song. For example, we don't know that there were three wise men. We know that there were more than two because it's plural. There may have been just two wise men. There may have been 20. The fact is, we simply do not know. And also, once again, to be that guy, they really weren't kings. They were magi, wise men, advisors to the king. In fact, as we're going to learn a little bit later, they were astrologers. So already, many of the common things we accept about the three wise men we see are not true. So as we turn to the scripture, it's not just to learn facts about who they are, but to recognize that there was something much bigger going on. Matthew wants us to see who Jesus is so that we can respond appropriately. Because if you don't know who Jesus is, you won't be able to respond in the right way. So it's not just knowing that Jesus was born and these three wise men came. It's knowing who Jesus is. Because once you know who Jesus is, then the right response comes around very naturally. Or I should say, at least we know how we should respond to him. Because not knowing who he is will prevent us from responding correctly. For example, one of the greatest golfers of the early 20th century was a man by the name of Harry Varden. Not as well known today, certainly, as the stars, the American golfers we know, but nonetheless, he was great. To show you how good he was, his nickname was the artist because of things he could make a golf ball do on the course. And even today, the award given to the PGA, the professional golfer with the best score during a year, is called the Varden Trophy. He won the British Open six times, a feat that has never been matched. 
But at the height of his career, he was stricken with tuberculosis. And for a year and a half, he lived in a sanatorium in England trying to recuperate from this disease. Interestingly enough, the very sanatorium that he was checked into as a patient was located next to a three-hole golf course. But for the first six months of his stay there, he was simply too weak to even walk out there. But his strength eventually came to him. And even though he wasn't able to swing a club, he would enjoy walking out and standing on the edge of the putting green as golfers would come through. And here's the irony of it. Golfers would come through and not have any clue who this man was standing watching them play. Never once was he asked for advice. Never once did they seek an autograph. Never once were they in awe that the greatest golfer of their generation was standing there watching them because they did not know who he was. His identity had been kept a secret, not released to the press. No one knew what had happened to Harry Varden. And do you not see the irony of standing there, being able to have the opportunity to partake of this great wisdom, and yet, because you don't know, you don't respond. You see, today in America, our greatest challenge is not atheism. According to Pew Research, atheists really represent a small portion of Americans. The greatest number of Americans today simply are what's called agnostic. They say we don't know. And it's not that they don't know the name Jesus. The fact that a man by the name of Jesus lived is an incontrovertible fact. The question is who is he? Who is this Jesus? That's the message the Gospels seek to answer. And Matthew shows us the answer but through these three wise men. Now notice as they come, they approach Jerusalem. It's simply because they came to Jerusalem seeking a king. Another one of the misnomers that occurs in relation to this is that the star was leading them all the way from where they started in what was believed to be southern Babylon to Jerusalem. And that's not the case at all. If you'll look down to verse 9, you'll see that it's only after they speak with Herod and begin to leave Jerusalem that the star rose and led them to the place where Jesus and Mary were. How did they know to go to Jerusalem? It's because of this. It's the grace of God. You see, the Magi were an interesting group. They were a group of astrologers. They were a group that sought to, to predict the future by looking at the stars. Today, we would call them horoscope readers. And so when they say they saw the star rise and they knew it, it signified the birth of the king, it's because they were looking at the stars trying to foretell the future. But it begs the question, how did they know what this, this astrological phenomenon meant? simply because of this as I said earlier they were located I believe in the southern portion of Iraq or Babylon at that time 400 years prior to this the, the kingdom of Judah had been conquered by the Babylonians and part of the Babylonian policy once they had conquered an enemy is to take the best and the brightest and the youngest and to transport them back to Babylon so they could be indoctrinated in Babylonian culture and that's exactly what happened. But what we find is this, that as Judah was taken 
four, over 800 miles away from their homeland, they started turning back to God. Prophets like Ezekiel came and preached. And something called synagogues began to develop where the Old Testament was taught. So how did these pagan astrologers know what this star meant? It's because 400 years earlier, God was at work planting seeds that would bear fruition in this moment. You see, we have to recognize that God is not just at work now. What He is doing now is preparing for the next step of His plan. It is preparing for those who will follow us in 5 years, 10 years, 15, 20, 100 years should Jesus Christ so tarry in His return. He is working now, even preparing for the future as He works in your life. And God is at work in your life now. See, another thing about this star is we really don't know exactly what the star was. Some have looked and tried to figure out, was it the birth of a new star that suddenly and gloriously appeared in the heavens? Some have argued it was a comet that was slowly making its way across the sky that they followed. I'm not sure the star can be described by either of those events. I think there's a strong case to be made that this star was a manifestation of God's glory. The word star can refer to anything that is glowing, anything that is luminescent that appears. And it's very possible that God gave a special manifestation of His glory in the sky that only these magi could see. Now why would I say that? Think through this, what I think is, is logically. After they met with Herod, the star appears to God. them, And Herod says, come back and send me word so I'll know where the star was. If it was visible to everyone, would it have not made sense for Herod to have simply sent a spy to follow them? Because he could follow the star too. So I submit to you, is it possible that in God's grace, he worked to get the gospel, to know who Jesus is, to these three pagan astrologers in a way that was individual to them that they would know? I think it's very possible. Because God seeks to work in our lives to bring us to know Him in ways that you and I will resonate with. The gospel is one gospel, true for all. But the path we take to know and understand the gospel may be very different. Some are saved early at age because they've been brought up hearing the gospel and they know it. Some, it's later in life. Some go through great adversity. Some receive the gospel upon the first hearing of it. God works in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. And the amazing thing is, is that God knows you and how to work in your life to bring you where you need to be. The question is, how will we respond once we're there? That's where this drama takes place. The first response I would point out is that of Herod the king. Herod was a shrewd politician, bloodthirsty, cruel. He was so cruel that obviously later in this chapter we learn that he ordered the murder of all children under two in the town of Bethlehem. But understand, that was not unusual for Herod. He was a man so consumed with power and authority and staying in the good graces of the Roman authority, he had members of his own family killed because he thought they were a threat to his reign. In fact, Caesar Augustus from Luke chapter 2 once said that he would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. 
Herod was mean, shrewd, but cruel. He's known as Herod the Great because he engaged in a building program that would satisfy the Jews and at the same time show honor to the Romans. So you understand that when Herod speaks of worshiping Jesus, we know it's with a wink and a, yeah, I want to worship him. Why was Herod so antagonistic? Why was he so intent? On destroying Jesus. It's because Jesus was viewed as a threat. This new king of the Jews was a threat to Herod. And we think surely we would not fall into that category where we see Jesus as a threat. But I think if we stop for a moment we recognize we don't want to respond to Jesus for that very reason. The gospel threatens our own autonomy. Preaching Jesus as Lord means that we have to follow Him and not our own desires. It's a threat to our sense of independence where we say, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And to follow Jesus as Lord means I want to do what Jesus says to do when He says to do it in the manner He wants to do it. Understand, there is a threatening nature to the gospel. To follow Christ means hearing His words. I say to you, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn your other cheek to him. Say, if someone says to you, go one mile with me and help me, you go two. That's threatening. I say to you, forgive. Not just once, not just twice, but 70 times seven. Oh Lord, I don't some ways I think we're like the rich young ruler. This man who, was, who would have been on the cover of GQ Monthly in Jerusalem comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, follow the law and the prophets and you'll have the kingdom. And in my mind I see this rich young ruler throwing his shoulders back and smiling and saying, I've done that. I'm in. Then Jesus says, one more thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then you will have the kingdom of God. And the smile becomes a frown. He walks away. Because Jesus had just identified the area in which he threatened that rich young ruler. I'll follow you, Lord, but I want to keep my wealth to myself. You see, we can't pick and choose what we submit to the Lordship of Christ. It's been said Jesus is either Lord over all or He's not Lord at all. And we can't compartmentalize our lives and say, Lord, I'll follow you. Give me grace and peace. But that whole obedience thing, that's where Herod was. Herod could say the right words. He knew the right words. He knew worship. He didn't understand the scripture. That's why he had these advisors come and, and tell him who Jesus is. But compared to Herod, who sees this new king as a threat and wants to do away with him, the Magi respond quite differently. 
seekers. And they come and Herod tells them where to go. And it's very interesting to me that their response, when they see the star, what, as I said earlier, I believe is this manifestation of the glory of God given to lead them. Notice their response. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why was that? They knew grace. They knew grace. They knew that God was guiding them. They hadn't figured this out. I would remind you, as I said earlier, they were astrologers. Read the horoscope. It's nothing to play around with. The scripture has strong warnings about seeking guidance in supernatural ways apart from God. In fact, the scripture is so adamant about it that those who practiced the arts of astrology in the Old Testament were to be stoned to death. So isn't it interesting that some of the first to respond to Jesus are pagan astrologers who God reached with his grace? Isn't that amazing? These who would deserve to die, now God is saying, come and recognize who Jesus is. Is that not the good news of the gospel? That we who deserve death can know Jesus and respond with great joy? And I love the fact that it's emphasized. They responded exceedingly, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Once we recognize the magnificence of grace, our response will be a joyful response that does not know any bounds and is not contained. I love hearing, and I've read the story, I've shared with it before, of a time back when our country tragically, immorally recognized slavery as legitimate. At that time, churches would gather to worship, and it would be split into really two separate congregations. The owners would sit on the bottom of the church and there would be the slave gallery at the top. And Sunday after Sunday as they came to worship, there was one, one African American by the name of Old Jim that would get into the sermon and when the preacher was preaching, Old Jim would say, that's right, preach it preacher, amen, thank you Lord, thank you. And this got on his master's nerves. So one Saturday before Sunday service, Jim's owner came to him and said, Jim, I tell you what, I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to make a deal with you. If you will sit through the Sunday service quietly, I will give you a new pair of boots. Jim said, yes, sir, I can do that for a pair of boots. The next morning service began and Jim was in his spot. Those who were next to him said Jim was literally sitting on his hands and going, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. And then finally it was too much. At a point where the preacher was, was rising high in rhetoric, old Jim stood up and he said, Boots or no boots, I'm going to praise God. Oh, I hope we have that attitude. No matter what others think, I will praise God because He is worthy of our praise. It's interesting though that their great joy over God's grace is matched with humility. Verse 11, what happens? They fell down and worshipped him. The Greek emphasizes the falling down. You could really literally translate that. They fell on their faces and fell before him. See, the word worship literally means to lay down face first in front of God. That's humility. Remember, these were advisors. They were wealthy. They were powerful in their country. But what do they do when they see this child and Mary? They lay down in humility before him and they acknowledge who he is. Once you see the greatness of Jesus, the greatness of God, the proper response is humility. Humility and grace go hand in hand. 
When we recognize we've been given the grace of God, we see that we have nothing to stand upon to say, I deserve this. It is grace through and through. And so in humility, we recognize that God has been merciful to us. So our response should be one of joy because of the grace of God. Humility because of who God is and the grace that he has given us. But notice that there's a third thing that they do. They open their treasures and they give to him. Now it's been said by some that this was a, a type or a, a foreshadowing of the cross and the resurrection because the gold represents royalty, the frankincense worship, and the myrrh is a spice used to anoint dead bodies. And that's very possible. There's nothing in the scripture that makes that direct connection. I think the point is this. These were expensive gifts. They were giving out of what they had. I want you to notice the pattern. Grace in the revelation and the recognition of Jesus. Humility and giving. You see, part of worship is giving. And I'm not just talking about stuff as they did here, but giving out of our lives to say, Lord, you are worthy. So what would you have me do? I will do it. One of the heroes of the faith for me is a person you have never met and probably will not meet until glory. He's one of those unsung heroes. We live in a world that has mega pastors and famous uh, church leaders. I still think on the day we all stand before God, we're going to be very shocked at who is recognized and who is not recognized. I think that one man that will be recognized by God, as the Lord says, well done, my good and faithful servant, is a preacher by the name of Arnold Womack. Arnold's the pastor that I grew up under. Preacher Womack is what we called him. He was bivocational. He was also illiterate. When he was called to preach, his wife would read to him the passages and he would commit them to memory to preach them until he got to the point where he said, Lord, people need to see their preacher open the Bible and read it. So God, will you grant me and help me to learn how to read? This man, already middle-aged, set out learning to read so he could preach God's word and model it. That's saying, Lord, you are Lord of all. I will do what you have called me to do. That is an act of worship. It's not drawing boundaries around God to say, I will worship you up to here and then no further. It's saying, all I have, God, is yours. Because if God has given us grace, and he has, and our response is humility, which it should be, we will demonstrate that as we say, Lord, here am I. One of my favorite Christmas carols is actually a Christmas carol not based on anything in the scripture. I know that that is shocking, but let me explain why. The song, The Little Drummer Boy, has always kind of captivated me. One, because I've often wondered how young parents would feel if somebody showed up with a drum to play for their baby who just fell asleep. But that's beside the point. It's the chorus of the song. As the story unfolds, this little boy comes to see baby Jesus. The song goes, Come, they told me a newborn king to see. Our finest gifts we bring to lay before the king. 
little baby, I'm a poor boy too. I have no gift to bring that's fit to give the king. Shall I play for you on my drum? You know why I like that? Because that's saying, Lord, it's not about what I don't have that I need to give you. It's about saying, Lord, what I have is yours. It may be much, it may be little, but Lord, I'm yours. That's the proper response to Jesus. He is the king who has given us grace. Let's respond humbly by giving our all to him. That's worship. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me, if you will. There are really two paths laid out before us. It's the path following that of Herod, who knew the right words, knew the language of worship, but really saw Jesus as a threat. And because of that, he played a part. Tell me and I'll come and worship him. That's one path we can go down. But the other path is following the path of three magi who came because of the grace of God and responded humbly with joy and giving. In just a moment, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. I'm going to ask Nathan to come and he and I will both be standing here in the altar if you would like one of us to pray with you. But I'd ask you this morning that by the power of the Holy Spirit just to take a look at your heart. What's your response to Jesus this morning? Heavenly Father, you know our hearts better than we know them ourselves. So we ask you, Lord, to direct us towards you. That we would follow the example of these three, three magi and that we would prostrate ourselves before you and worship you and give you the glory which you are to Grant it, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.